All of us are on a complicated journey of faith, pursuing truth and deeper knowledge of God. But how do we know we're doing it right? Many of you know that faith is a complicated thing, and it can be a painful and difficult journey, and far too often we are not given a space where we can safely address the complications and issues that arise naturally. My name is Joshua Patterson, and one of my best friends, Marty Frederick, and I have agreed to join each other in creating exactly that kind of space where questions and critical thinking are welcome. We want to look honestly at the issues and questions plaguing the Christian church today and to genuinely seek out what it means to live like Jesus in our ever-changing world, in our expanding universe, and in our pluralistic society. We believe that doubt is not the enemy of faith, but perhaps one of its greatest allies. We think that the Christian life is more about asking the right questions than it is about finding the answers. And we believe we are being called to continually ask those questions, renewing our minds and rethinking our faith in the process. Thank you for joining us on that journey. All right. Well, welcome to another episode of the Rethinking Faith podcast. As always, I'm one of your hosts, Josh Patterson, and with me today is my good friend, Marty Frederick. Marty, what's going on, man? Not much. It's a beautiful day where I'm at. It's in the 60s. Oh, nice. <laughs> November 19th. Kind of weird. Um, yeah. How about you? How, how are you doing? I'm good, man. It's a bit, it's more chilly here. I don't know if you can see, but I'm wrapped up in blankets right now. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely not in the 60s. It's, I think we're somewhere in the 40s today um, in here in Maryland for listeners who don't know. Um, yeah, but it, and it's crazy because we have like our wood stove going. We use the wood stove to heat our house, uh, but we close the doors to this room. There's like French doors. Uh, this is like our library, uh, just so the dogs don't get in here because, you know, um, dogs plus shredding books will make me very sad. Mm. And mm. so the downside is the heat doesn't travel into the room with me. So um, I'm wrapped up in my my blanket uh, and we should be good to go. You should get yourself a real nice space heater for that room, <laughs> like, a, like yeah. one or two of them and just kind of put them around the room in different places and then like just have them running at all times. And then that room's set. It's its own thing. I mean, it's a small amount of electricity, so it might up That's your true. bill a couple bucks. But you know. yeah, we could do that, or I can I can continue to use the cold to my advantage. You know, if I'm like reading something, but it's like kind of boring or dry, like you know, keep me awake or something. Sure, sure, <laughs> sure. Except I don't tend to read stuff that I find boring or dry. Um, That's true. So well, it's really Josh, not an issue you know, for me. <laughs> we we have we have someone on the show that probably knows more about cold. <laughs> given where they live than maybe we do down here in the in the balmy south yeah absolutely yeah and actually um so listeners this is if you go way back in the archives this is uh, a guest we had on all the way back on episode 28 which was pre-marty days yeah pre-marty days so with us today is bruxy cavey brux how's it going man hi you guys greetings from the great white north <laughs> good to be with you i i love this you guys are so you're like uh, young, hip grandmas all back together <laughs> with conversations about your blankets and your cold bones. It's uh, this is it's lovely. I it's feel very perfect. Much, yeah, I feel really at home. So lovely. Awesome. <laughs> to be clear, I'm the older one and I didn't say I was cold. So. <laughs> 
Yeah, that's uh, also it's it's funny, Marty, because you you have the nice beard going on, and of course, Bruxy does as well. So I feel kind of left out. I feel like I might be a little bit warmer if I could match your guys, but my <laughs> facial hair uh, growing skills are not great. <laughs> you you could try Josh getting like hair club for men, but like doing it for your face. <laughs> <laughs> there you <laughs> go. Yeah, we'll we'll have to uh, we'll have to to throw in the uh, hip young grandmas quote into our our list of fun quotes from guests last time bruxy you were on uh a quote that you you said that i i loved was you were engaging with our our former co-host andy uh who's super reformed um conservative like westminster confession or bust kind of guy and um he kept you know coming back to what you were saying and you just chuckled and you said oh you're so reformed you're beautiful (laughs) (laughs) i love the diversity of the body of christ absolutely absolutely Cool. Well, um, Bruxy, can just for, for uh, people who aren't familiar uh, with you and, and your work and what you do, can you just fill us in a little bit on you know who you are, uh, what you do? Yeah, sure, man. So um, I'm a pastor of a church, which I occasionally wake up in the middle of the night with the giggles when I realize I'm a pastor of a church because I'm one of those people who grew up my whole life thinking I will never be one of those, <laughs> the one of the, the suits, one of the guys who, I don't know, stands up the front and does all that stuff. So I'm living the life I never thought I'd be living, but um, I went through a season of life where the more I fell in love with Jesus, the less I appreciated his bride. <laughs> you know, like if you've ever had a friend who starts dating a girlfriend and you think, uh, I, le- I love my friend, but this chick that he's hanging out with, man, she is a piece of work and I do not like her. Then you got to figure out, well, I want, if I'm going to hang out with my friend, do I need to learn to accept her too? But I don't really like her at all. And I'm, I'm torn between the two. And I, I really felt that way for a big season of my life. I was like, Jesus, I love you. But man, this this lady that you have chosen as your bride, I mean, she's she's got to go. And then over time, of course, I realized that, wait a second, I am part of the bride of Christ. I'm, I, I want to be part of the solution, but I am also part of the problem. And I can't just detach myself and sit back in judgment. And so I went through a maturing phase where I continued to fall in love with Jesus, but also started to fall in love with his church again as well. Um, even while at the same time carrying with me a lot of the... Um, the deconstructing uh, 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 criticisms, critiques of what's wrong with the church, I think are important to hold on to because I think Jesus holds on to those. And in some sense, we should be living a, a repentant faith that we're just always, uh, you know, the, the reformers had a phrase, reformed and always reforming, uh, except they kind of shrink wrapped and freeze dried their faith in the 1500s and 1600s. But but the, the, I, I think we should, the radicals came along and said, let's actually do this, man. Let's just keep on reforming and and growing and changing. And so um, I've now come full circle where I love the church, but I'm willing to criticize the church and including myself and live out an ongoing repentant faith and uh, and be a pastor of a church, um, which, you know, ironically, uh, we we would say that the, the problem with uh, organized religion, it's not that it's organized. Organization isn't the problem. It's that it's religious. It, it depends on a system of rules, regulations, rituals, and routines to get people to God. And, and so I would say the antidote to organized religion is not disorganized religion. It's organized irreligion. It is saying we're going to get organized in this new movement of grace and freedom and Jesus-centricity instead of Christianity as a, as, as a giant monstrosity. Um, and, I, and so I want to be a part of organizing that kind of irreligious revolution. 
Yeah, sweet. That's awesome, Brox. Thanks for that. I, I know I, I uh, kind of first encountered you during a chapel service at Messiah College. And that's when I mm. uh, first picked up the end, the end of religion, the, uh, the OG version, the first edition. Uh, and then I also read Reunion um, and started tracking with the Meeting House. And then um, I've had the privilege of being connected with you now through Jesus Collective, which has been uh, wonderful. Um, and I'm excited for the whole theology circle thing. Um, it should be starting up soon. Uh, yeah, so that's yeah. cool. That's, so I look, that's yeah, I look forward to that. Um, sweet. Well, also, I just wanted to congratulate you really fast on becoming a Halloween costume. I saw that <laughs> <laughs> on Instagram and I thought that was so, so funny. That's, that's how you know you've made it when you become a Halloween costume. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. It's, uh, it's funny. We, um, well, I guess I got a weird look for a pastor. I don't know. I, the, <laughs> a newspaper did an article. I've had a couple newspaper locally do articles on our church and on me and say, one of them described me as a blonde, beefy biker type. Another one said, I'm a cross between Willie Nelson and Santa Claus. So, oh, wow. I, I don't know. so I guess I don't look like a pastor is their point. I'm not sure. But um, yeah, that was, that was a really uh, fun little twist. Someone's Halloween costume. This <laughs> I could see Willie Nelson and Hagrid from Harry Potter is the. All right. All right. All right. We'll go with that. <laughs> <laughs> um, I got the Dumbledore glasses, so we can. There we go. Yeah, that's great. Oh man, it's all coming together now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so typically, we ask everyone to get a question at the beginning of the episode, but you've already been asked the hockey question. Um, so our fantastic second-time guest question is: Who has been your favorite live musical act that you've ever seen? You two. Good answer. Yeah, yeah, I. I appreciate uh, the depth of their songwriting and, um, and, you know, you emotionally bond with, with music and experiences and, and smells and traditions and everything of a certain era of your life. And so you two was one of those bands for me during um, that young adult season of my life. I'm just really emotionally bonded with it. So I'm so glad they're still around. And, yeah. um, uh, and I, I appreciate both their, the depth of their writing and their character, but then also the music just somehow, it gets me or I get it or something connects there. So it's beautiful. Yeah. I look forward to the day when live music is back again, when we can actually go see live music again. Yeah. Um, right. That'll be great. But then another question we've been asking uh, kind of uh, recently is um, what is the most um, significant thing that you think you've had to rethink in your faith? Mm, yeah. Oh, that's good. Um, I've been processing, and in fact, I dedicate a chapter to this at the end of the at the end of religion. Been processing honest disappointment with the transforming work of the Holy Spirit. Uh, there's a guy called Philip Yancey wrote a book uh, decades ago called Disappointment with God, and it picks up on that theme that the Christian faith is the only faith on the planet that front that claims to front end load a miracle that you become born again or remade, given a new heart, a new spirit, and God's spirit at the beginning of your journey. You know, so it's not a religion of, of how you're going to work, work hard and learn certain techniques or spiritual disciplines to achieve enlightenment or achieve some state. You're actually, you start that way. You are remade up front. Um, and then you have the actual spirit of the creator of the universe dwelling within you, who is helping you live out what's already been placed within you. And that front-end loaded miracle, on the one hand, that's what I find so uh, kind of religiously subversive 
attractive and so attractive to me. On the other hand, it's also a source of disappointment. It's the elephant in the room that Christians throughout history and still today have lived such mixed lives. The, the history of the church is sometimes violent and dark and horrible. And I have a couple of chapters that is chronicling that. Um, and then some, sometimes even Christians today as individuals say are st- struggling so hard, saying where is the evidence of this apparent miraculous remaking of our souls as the first step in our faith with Jesus? Uh, and where is the evidence of that? And so that's been an ongoing thing I've been processing. And I come to some conclusions um, in the book and why I am still uh, a, a faithful fan and follower of Jesus and while, why I, I'm not looking anywhere else, but, um, but also I'm wanting to inject brutal honesty into the conversation with Christians to say, why are we not always and often throughout church history, not experiencing what seems to have been a promised radical remaking miracle. Yeah, that's huge. That's huge. And that, that question of transformation is something I myself too have been um, wrestling with recently as well, you know, looking through uh, like neuroscience and psychology and, uh, some different other things, but uh, that that's a rabbit hole that we can <laughs> chase some other time. Because uh, today we do want to focus on um, your latest book that you you have released, The End of Religion, Encountering the Subversive Spirituality of Jesus. And this is actually the expanded edition. And listeners, uh, for those of you who encountered the original edition, I know a lot of times you hear expanded and that just means you get like you know, one extra chapter in the book, like might have a new preface or something. I think this is twice the size (laughs) of the, of the first one. So it truly is updated and expanded, but uh, Bruxy right off the bat, why, what led you to, to want to return to this work? Cause I think it did come out about 10 years ago or so, right? So what, what led you want to, to, to come back and do an updated and expanded edition? Well, thanks. Yeah. Thanks for asking. It is a, it's a theme that I think, we often don't fully plumb the depths of when it comes, and that is the radical shift of the new covenant, this idea of covenant. And I just think it's something that I'm going to spend the rest of my life um, appreciating how kind of how deep the rabbit hole goes. And I, and so since the, since the book came out last time, I've been engaged with my own study, but then also the study of others and then interacting with so many people who who were interacting with that first edition, that there was just so much more I wanted to say. Uh, it wasn't a matter of saying, I, I need to change my mind on A, B, and C, but it was, oh, now now let's help connect the dots, how A, B, and C connect with D, E, and F. And there's just so much more. And I'm sure 10 more years from now, I'll want to write another edition, but I'm not going to. I'm, this is it. Um, but, uh, but I thought this is, there's just so much more to say to help people dig a little deeper into this. Um, the shift from Old Covenant to New Covenant is so radical because it's not just a new version of the same thing, like like saying, you know, back in the day, I've got a mixtape and it's really great, but I'm going to get a new mixtape. Uh, it's not a new version of the same thing. It's a new, it's, it's not just new content, it's new format. So it's not just shifting from a one cassette tape to another cassette tape. It's shifting from a cassette tape to live streaming. The, the format shift is so significant the new covenant is not just a new set of rules engraved on tablets of stone. The new covenant is a radically new way of experiencing God from the inside out rather than from the outside in with God invading and remaking from the inside. And then spiritual practice becomes a matter of just trying to live out 
what you believe has already happened to you on the inside. And that, that shift, I think, is just something that often both outside the church and inside the church, we don't appreciate as much. And that's a shift that um, opens up so many new possibilities. It's so beautiful. And at the same time, in order to experience the newness, sometimes you have to let go of some of the old. And, and Christians are terrible at letting go of the old in order to experience the new. Uh, re- the religious spirit is really, it's like religious hoarding. Uh, I find that we're often open to new things. Oh, yeah, I love a new thing, but don't make me give up any old thing. Uh, and so we just keep hoarding, uh, whether it's traditions, practices, beliefs, and we're trying to bolt one onto the other and bolt the New Testament onto the Old Testament. And, um, and we create a bit of a Frankenstein's monster of theology that Jesus pushes the whole reset button on through this thing called the New Covenant. So um, I, I, as you can tell, this just excites me. And, it's, um, and I've, seen, I've, I've seen it bear fruit in enough people's lives that I thought this is worth expanding on a bit more and uh, hence this new version of the book. Mm, that sounds awesome. I, I'm excited to begin talking about it too. And uh, so I guess a good place to start is Josh tells me that you have a really cool tattoo on your arm. Uh, that might be a good place to start. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, sure. Um, I know only you guys can see this, but Leviticus 1928 is the tattoo that I have on my arm. And it, it, it comes about from me Listen, when I, when I hit 50 years old, I was a wake-up call because that's old. Like, I'm now the old guy. And that was just a weird thing for me, man. Uh, when I hit 50, because I remember, I'm like, I'm like in my teens, and I'm, I'm going to live forever. And then I'd be in my 20s, and I'm in the prime of my life. And I'd be in my 30s, and it's like, well, 30 is ready to go. And I'm 40, and well, 40 is the new 30. And then, you know, I hit 50, and it was like, yeah, I'm dead. That's it. I'm out of excuses, man. There's nothing more I can say. 50 is what? It's uh, so, so it struck me, I'm going to die soon. That's, that's what's going to happen. That's the next thing on my agenda. And, um, and so it doesn't matter if I live to be 100. You know, there's no way that, I mean, I'm, I'm past the halfway mark for sure. And so I'm going to die soon. So what, what that ignited within me is saying, I want to share more of, of this good news with more people. And um, I found that Christians need the gospel, it seems, sometimes as much as non-Christians. But I, I just want to strike up Jesus conversations. And so I changed a number of things in my life to help me have more meaningful, loving Jesus conversations. And one of them I thought is going to be I'm going to get a tattoo because, um, because people ask questions about tattoos. It's a great conversation starter. So it's just one of those things I thought I'd do. I'm not very creative, didn't have a picture in mind. I thought I'll just put a Bible verse. But what Bible verse should I put? Uh, John 3.16, Ephesians 2, 8 to 10, what am I going to put there? And um, it's so interesting because in the back of my mind was always that one Bible verse, Leviticus 19.28, that I remember from my childhood saying, do not get a tattoo for I am the Lord. And I love the fact that Yahweh ends that command with I am the Lord, as though that's like a stamp of approval of importance. You know, this is a powerful command. Uh, I am the Lord. It's like, you know, I am Yahweh and I approve this message. So, I, I remember this being told there is this Bible verse says it's a sin to get a tattoo. And uh, that was always in the back of my mind, uh, kind of thwarting my plan. So I, but then of course I realized that this, this beautiful message of the end of religion is really summed up in, in, uh, in the, the letting go of the law and replacing law with love. And so um, 
And so I thought if I'm going to get any one Bible verse that helps generate conversations about the transition from the old covenant to the new covenant, that's the Bible verse. So I have Leviticus 19.28 on my arm, and it's lovely when people say, I mean, they first see some verse from Leviticus and they think, uh-oh, this guy hates homosexuals or something. They're not sure what it's, it's going to say something terrible. And you can see they're a little awkward and then they're like, uh, okay, what, what does it say? What's that Bible verse? And I say, oh, 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 this tattoo here, that's, that's the Bible verse that says whatever you do, don't get a tattoo. Well, their face lights up and it leads to some fantastic conversations. So um, I, I have no regrets. It's my one tattoo and it, it's a great conversation starter and it summarizes what, I'm, what we're talking about. Man, I love that. See, my arms are taken up. Mine says uh, Emmanuel Methanatheos. Wow. Emmanuel, God with us on our arm. And this is the season for that. That's like my favorite time of the year because I, I wear short sleeve things when I get up on stage or something on a Sunday and I have my Emmanuel right there during Christmas time. In the Greek. Good. Yeah. See, that's a smart man's <laughs> tattoo. And wait, Josh is going all Hebrew on yeah, it. Yeah. Josh. So we've got all the biblical languages now and, and so then English good. for you. So we've got references. Well, so that's, yeah. that's good. And, and that's what I love about that is that it's a conversation starter, like you're talking about. Um, but, you know, speaking of conversations and words and that kind of thing, I know that a lot of times words can be tricky. And so your book is End of Religion. Mm-hmm. Um, what, can you explain what you mean by religion? Because I think that that can mean something to some people and to others. Yeah, absolutely. And it's true. One of the things I point out in my book is, hey, if you use the word religion, the way Jesus would use the word faith, he doesn't use the word religion. He uses the word faith, uh, which is a relational connecting word. And if you, some people use the word religion that way, they'll say, I'm a religious person. And by that, they mean I have a real heartfelt connection with God. Or they might say, I've had a religious experience. And by that, they mean something, a genuine, relational, experiential connection with the divine. If someone says, I'm a religious person, I don't talk them out of it. I don't say, hey, don't you know I wrote a book called The End of Religion, and you should change how you use your words. People use words differently. And when we bump up with somebody who uses their words differently on this topic, I think all we have to do is let them talk for Sometimes it's 30 to 60 seconds and you realize, oh, I see what you're doing there. You're using the word religion positively. I'm using it negatively. We may be saying the same thing, just disagreeing over the word label itself. Um, The Apostle Paul says to Timothy in um, 1 Timothy 2.14, or is it 2 Timothy 2.14? It's bad for a dyslexic to be in a be in a ministry where you have to remember a lot of names and numbers uh, sandwiched together. Um, He says, Timothy, as a young pastor, let me encourage you with this. You have to warn people. This is really important, he says. You have to warn people about, he calls them arguments about words. Arguments about words. He says, because they're, they're bad for you, and they'll ruin all the people who, who are listening. They'll drag other people down with you. So Paul says there's a certain kind of argument that is not even about the substance. It's about the word labels that you use to describe the substance. And you might actually agree uh, in, in essence but you use your word labels differently. He says, don't get suckered into those. You're, you should be mature enough, big boys and girls, to be able to say, I see how you're using your word label differently. Let's continue to have a mature conversation. And he, and he really warns against that as a problem, maybe even especially for religious people, because religious people sometimes get very meticulous about their word usage. They want to get their theology just right. So when they hear someone use a different word differently, they're like, jump on it, pounce. And um, as I don't want to pounce on people who are using the word religion in a way that Jesus doesn't, 
Um, I understand that words shift not only person to person, but culture to culture and also time period to time period throughout history. But the word the word uh, religion in the New Testament, threskea, uh, which refers to external uh, forms and rituals, is a neutral word. It's not necessarily positive or negative. It's usually used negatively in the Bible, and it's only used positively once, and that's James 1.27, where James says, the only religion that God cares about. Oh, our antenna should pop up. Okay, you're gonna, it's the only positive use of the word religion. What is it? The only religion that God cares about is... Um, you should help people and don't follow the patterns of the world. Like, oh, he's actually, I think with his tongue in his cheek, he's firmly, uh, he, he's performed a religion dectomy on faith. You know, he said, if, if you want, if you want to call yourself religion, great. Here's the religion God cares about. Live a life of love and don't take your cues from the world. He has not populated his definition with anything we would think of as religion. Uh, the external forms, he doesn't mention any of the religious forms. He doesn't say the only religion God cares about is worshiping at the temple or worshiping in this form or fashion or memorizing these scriptures or praying this many times a day or reading this holy book. No, just love people well. Uh, that's why I think John Wesley said, if you're going to use the word religion, the only religion that I preach is the religion of love. Uh, that's based on James 1.27 or in the words of, uh, of Ziggy Marley, love is my religion. It's a great song. Um, so that's the only positive use in the Bible. Otherwise, it's a negative thing, and Jesus instead uses the word faith. So when I talk about the end of religion, I'm talking about the end of rules, regulations, rituals, and routines as our mechanism to, 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 to achieve salvation or our, our theological end goal, our experiential end goal. The use of rules, regulations, rituals, and routines to achieve. Rather, the new covenant graces us with everything we've been trying to achieve. It just gives it to us. And so now, everything we do, we can do to celebrate. We can do it for celebration rather than for salvation. So um, I tell people at our church, uh, the Meeting House, that being a Christian is one of those weird things where we get together every Sunday, whether that's online now or in person eventually, uh, we get together every Sunday to remind ourselves that we don't have to get together every Sunday because it's not a religion. It's, it's the expression of something that's already true. So it's a privilege. It's a delight. It's a celebration. We're doing this for celebration, not for salvation. We read the Bible to learn the message that we don't have to read the Bible. We sing songs of worship to the God who tells us we don't have to sing songs. It's all a get to. We get to sing songs. We get to gather together. We get to do these things. With It's no pressure. It's just delight and celebration. Um, so I think that is the new covenant understanding. Faith is the word that captures that. Religion is too small a word to bear the weight of what Jesus has brought. I don't want to cause an argument about words, but I, but I am right. <laughs> I am more biblical on this one. Uh, but if someone strays from good biblical word usage, I just listen to their heart instead of listen to their mouth. Yeah. You know, I used to work at a, a reformed church was the first place I worked. And um, I remember the worship leader and I, we were both new. We had both come on within weeks of each other. He's a little bit older than I am. And he said, uh, he said something on stage of, you know, like today's a day we get to enjoy the presence of God. We get, we get to enjoy worshiping God today. And uh, after the service, a woman came up to him and said, um, we don't come here to enjoy. Church is not something that we are to enjoy. We come here because we are obligated to be here and worship him. Mm. And it, um, I remember standing there thinking to myself, man, that is just so wrong. <laughs> like, yeah. like if we don't enjoy this, what are we doing? Like, 
I mean, yes. why, why, why would we do this otherwise? If we did it, if we hated doing this, why would God order and command us to do something that we despise? That makes no oh, sense to me. No, it's like, it, it's like he loves torturing little animals. That's a psychopath, right? That's not the God who <laughs> right. would love. Um, and we, it's interesting because Jesus will use analogies to help us understand in human terms just how radical God's love is, like the parable of the prodigal son or the parable of the, the manager who, who will pay everyone equally, even those who only work a little bit and come along late in the day so that their pay is really grace as opposed to something they've earned through a long day's labor. And, and he points out sometimes these things will upset people. There's, there's workers who grumble that he, the, the, the master is so gracious in paying people who haven't worked a whole day. Uh, the older brother grumbles and upset, is upset because the younger brother has been welcomed home in the parable of the prodigal son. Uh, there are people who have that attitude of this has just got to be about working and earning and commitment um, those can be beautiful values, but they, they just fall short of the fullness and beauty of the new covenant message. Um, because these analogies of a parental loving relationship or, uh, or of a husband and wife that uh, Jesus would use, and we're the bride of Christ, that would just be a disservice to a marriage to say, if someone says, I just delight in you, the husband says to his wife or vice versa, I delight in you and I love being with you. And the other one corrects them and says, well, you shouldn't be here because you delight being with me. You should only be here because once upon a time we made a vow and I hope you're sticking to it. That's just ridiculous. And it misses so much of the beauty of what a relationship and encounter with God can be. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah, that's that's good. And um, speaking of metaphors, Bruxy, you use uh, a super helpful metaphor in the book that really gets at the heart of what I think you're saying I mean, it's actually one that I kind of, I borrowed and transformed in a sermon I preached recently. Uh, hmm. Your metaphor is this idea that um, when we talk about religion, it's similar to uh, licking a cup. Mm-hmm. I, I flipped it and I, I was preaching on the um, water to wine bit. And so I borrowed your idea and did, have you ever licked a wine glass? Good, so I good. just it a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> but I think that's super helpful to get at what we're talking about. Yes. Here. You know, it, it would be an odd thing for someone to say, I'm, I'm thirsty. I'm so thirsty. I'm going to pour myself a glass of water and then hold up that glass and start licking the outside of it. And, and then wonder, huh, how come I haven't quenched my thirst? But I see that as a vivid metaphor of what religious people are doing all the time. They're trying to quench their spiritual thirst by licking the cup. And, uh, and they're, they're falling in love with the rituals or the routines that stored the living water of Jesus or the new wine of Jesus, depending on how alcoholic you like your liquid analogies. He gives us both. Um, but either way, the cup itself is not the enemies. That's the other thing, too, is I understand some people when they're deconstructing faith, they're moving away. It's something we have to do so that we can hopefully reconstruct and rebuild something beautiful. But during that phase of deconstructing, sometimes people just have to say no to the whole thing. And sometimes they make the mistake of, seeing the cup as the enemy. And organization is not the enemy, something at the top of our discussion we were talking about. Being organized is not the enemy. Um, any relationship benefits from some measure of organization. If you have a family, you're going to have family meals together. You know, one night a week, you say, everyone trying to arrange your schedule so we can at least have one meal together, sitting around the table and finding out how everyone's doing. Uh, that takes organization just to have that relationship. You know, people got to check their schedules. They got to work behind the scenes and it's all that technical stuff, but so that relationship can happen. So the cup is not the enemy. Uh, The problem is just when you think that the cup is the thing that saves you or refreshes you or enlivens you or enlightens you. No, no, it's a, it's a container and traditions are fine and organizations are fine, 
church services and church things are all fine because they help transport the living water. They tra- help transport to the next generation and to this generation, the, uh, the new wine. We just have to understand that no one set of traditions is sacrosanct. No, no one organization is the cup. You know, some cups are ornate and fancy, and some cups are, are pretty earthy and uh, simple, um, and, it, and it doesn't matter. They, their job is just simply to carry the, the new wine of the new covenant. Yeah. Well, and yeah, I think another part of this aspect that we need to keep in mind is um, in this conversation is the Jewishness of the Jews. Um, mm-hmm. What risk do we run when we ignore this aspect? Right on. So uh, I'm glad you raised that. The, the, uh, I have a chapter on this in, in this new edition um, that really touches on the fact that uh, sometimes there are spiritual teachers and preachers who ignore the Jewishness of Jesus, I think, to our peril so that they, they kind of find the platitudes and the sound bites of Jesus that fit their progressive spirituality. But much of that doesn't have an authentic and honoring relationship with the Jewish context of what Jesus is teaching. I I was on a a radio show with um, Deepak Chopra um, uh, as a guest along with him. And um, and we were talking about his writing and the writings of Eckhart Tolle. And, and it was interesting because I I like him. He's such a sweet guy. You know, I'd, I'd, I'd love him if he was, if I was related to him and Hey, uncle Deepak's coming over. He'd be a great guy to have around. He's a sweetheart, but I take issue with some of his, um, and he's allowed to have different opinions of spirituality, but when he starts using Jesus to support some of his opinions, that's when I kind of step in and say, okay, well, let's not de-Judaize Jesus and just use kind of these detached sound bites that speak to a cosmic truth, but are completely taken out of human context. Because part of the good news is that God actually entered our human context. And to enter our human context, the universal does become particular, uh, it's in, in theology, Christian theology, that's called the scandal of particularity, that the universal God became a particular person. That means he became one gender and not the other gender. He became uh, this race and not that race. He was born at this point in history, not that point in history. He was born in this country, not that country. He becomes particular in a whole list of ways in order to enter the human experience because the human experience is particular. We don't get to float around as universal concepts. You know, that's not who Josh and who Marty are and who Bruxy is. We we're, we're living very particular contextualized lives at a certain point in history. So God enters that. And to understand the teaching of Jesus best, and actually I think to plumb the depths of how radical and how subversive his message is, we need to keep Jesus within his thoroughly particular Jewish first century context. And then there are universal principles we can at- apply to our time and our place but before we get to the applying the universal principles, we've got to understand them within their Jewish context, or we're going to miss out on so much. Yeah, that's that's hugely important, especially too, because there's there's also like it just the risk of uh, like, I mean, there's been such a history of like anti-Semitism uh, within the church. Which actually, this is completely anecdotal, but I remember um, I was in a, a class during my my um, undergrad at Messiah. Uh, on the Holocaust, and my buddy Mark wrote his uh, final paper, and it auto-corrected anti-Semitism in his paper to anti-feminism, and he turned it in, and the teacher was very confused. <laughs> sorry, that's completely anecdotal, but I, sorry, Mark, that's just a funny story, and I feel bad for you, because <laughs> that is so off-base. <laughs> um, 
It's yeah. a good point you're raising. It's a good point. And what's happened in the history of, and you know, you know, I've got a again because some a uh, couple chapters on some of the the anti-Jewish sentiment, ironically, but within a movement about the Jewish Messiah, is it's horrific. It's absolutely horrific in how much it misses the mark. Um, that that Christians would kind of pick up that mantle and ignore the fact that Jesus is Jewish, all his followers are Jewish, and he comes as the fulfillment of the Jewish faith. And then we would say, okay, now the Jews are the bad guys uh, while we worship a Jew. Uh, this strange flooding of the Gentiles and then the detaching from J- its Jewish roots is, um, I think it's a, it's a horrible disservice. And then we saw that rise to a crescendo in modern history through um, through the Holocaust. And and it wasn't that Hitler was doing this in the name of Jesus, but but the seeds of anti-Semitism were there within the church to be watered and for Hitler to manipulate and to make use of. And so what has happened, I think, understandably, since the Holocaust is many Christian theologians saying, not, not only do we have to repent of our anti-Semitism, which is very true, we have to repent of that. Um, we need to now honor the Jewish roots of Jesus and only in ways that only speak positively about his Jewish context. Because we're, we realize that when we speak negatively of his his um, confrontation with the Pharisees and the religious institutionalization of his day, we can run the risk of anti-Semitism. So now the pendulum swing completely the other way, which is to say only speak positively. Of, and, but the challenge is when we do that, we reduce the message of Jesus to a message of, radic- of, of, of semi-radical rabbinic reform. That Jesus was a first century rabbi who wanted to just kind of tweak the religion and make it a little healthier, like any other first century rabbi. I'm going to say, no, that's not true. That's not what the Bible presents. So, so the question is, how can we fully honor the fact that Jesus went head to head with the religious institution of his day, uh, which was the Jewish religion of his day, but to understand he does this not because it's Jewish, but because it's religious. That's the reason Jesus challenges the Jewish religion, not because it's Jewish, but because it's religious. And then that becomes a transferable principle for the Christian religion, and every other religion, we say, well, Jesus can challenge us too when we fall in love with the system of salvation rather than the person who's at the center of it all. But I think it needs to start with a full appreciation of Jesus within his Jewish context. And it might be too extreme to call people like um, Eckhart Tolle or Deepak Chopra or other spiritual gurus to call them anti-Semitic, but I would say they are asemitic. They're not anti, but they're asemitic. They've just kind of uh, de-Judaized Jesus, and and we miss so much when we do that. Yeah, yeah, perfect. Uh, thank you for that. And so um, this, I think, then ties in, you know, especially speaking with uh, the Jewishness, um, into this idea that you mentioned earlier. Uh, but I just wanted to 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 go there a little bit more in depth. We have this old this idea of the old covenant and a new covenant. Um, but one helpful thing uh, that I've heard you say and, and you write in your book is it's not just a new covenant, but it's a new kind of covenant altogether. Yeah. So what's uh, what does that look like? What does that what does that mean? This this new covenant compared to sure. the old. Well, both in Jeremiah and in Ezekiel, in Ezekiel and in Joel, uh, the Old Testament prophets prophesied that when the new covenant comes, it will be a not just a new covenant, but a new kind of covenant. The law written on stone, will now be written on our hearts. And in fact, Ezekiel says, you're going to get a new heart that's that's able to sustain this 
You know, in order for you to sustain the intimacy the new covenant is going to call you into, you're going to have to need some internal remodeling. <laughs> you're going to have to be made new so that you can fully embrace what God wants to do with you. So Ezekiel uh, 36 says that there's going to be a new heart. We're going to be given a new heart. We're going to be given a new spirit, and we're going to be given God's spirit. But before God's spirit comes and dwells within us, which wasn't a universal experience of believers in the old covenant, um, before we get to have God's spirit come and dwell within us, we have to be remodeled from within. So we get a new heart, a new spirit, and then God's spirit. And then the voice of Jesus through the Holy Spirit, because wherever the spirit goes, the mind of Christ, the voice of Christ is represented. Um, that's why we can say technically Jesus right now is located at the right hand of the Father in heaven, but we can also speak of Jesus being in us and us having the mind of Christ because the Holy Spirit brings him to us. And so now through the voice of Jesus, through the Spirit, through the church, through the scriptures, um, we can make loving decisions that, yes, consult scripture, consult scripture, but it's not just limited to what does the rule book say? It is what is the Spirit saying uh, in circumstance, in history, in the church, in our hearts? Because um, he's given us a new heart. So you see how they make decisions in like the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, where they are deciding whether or not Gentiles have to obey the Torah, the old covenant law or not. And in order to do that, one scripture is quoted, which actually just kind of encourages them. They don't, but they don't do a Bible exegesis just to figure out, well, what does the law say? They actually, they pray, they work it through, they listen to what God's doing experientially. Well, look, he's filling the Gentiles with his spirit. So they look around, what is God doing? They exegete their experience. They exegete what their hearts are telling them and scripture. It's all together. That's way more though than just consulting the law. What does the law say? The Torah and the oral Torah together, the, 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 the uh, teachings and the traditions. And they listen to the Spirit, and they say, well, it seems good to us and to the Holy Spirit. This is how we should move forward. That's a beautiful inside-out covenant that is not just a new set of rules. It's a whole new ex way of experiencing God and one another in making ethical decisions. Um, so, I, yeah, I, I think it's, a, it, it's interesting because this new heart, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm riffing a little bit, but I think this is maybe important. Sometimes when... Um, I guess that's all I do. You ask me a simple question and I go on for 10 minutes. Sorry, man. I riff all the time, but I got, it's busy in my brain. I got a lot of stuff in here that just forces its way out sometimes. Um, the uh, So it, sometimes in Christian circles, I've noticed if someone would say, well, you know, you got to listen to your heart or I want to listen to my heart. Now, some people use that as just a cheap cliche to be selfish. I get that. I just got to follow my heart. And they haven't been trained to listen to the voice of the spirit by by getting to know Jesus in scripture. But I think that's what Jesus does for us. Scripture, what scripture does for us is it helps us recognize the voice of Jesus so we can identify the voice of Jesus speaking through our hearts. So we need scripture, absolutely, but we're not limited just to be people of the book. We're not people of the book. We're people of the person. Um, it, was, it was Muhammad who and early Islam who identified Christians as their people of the book because they were trying to find common ground between Christians, Jews, and now Muslims as they got their own book. And so Muhammad came up with that phrase, people of the book. So these three great monotheistic faiths, or at least we're all people of the book, we have that in common. But I am not beho be behoven, I am not uh, beholden to, um, to a Muslim definition of my Christian identity. Um, we are not people of the book. We are people of the person. And the book is helpful to us to get to know the voice of the person, but we need to go beyond the book to. So all of this said, uh, sometimes when we talk about this, someone will say, yeah, you can't, don't say, listen to your heart because the heart is deceitful and wicked. Who can understand it? But they're speaking as though the new heart 
promised in Ezekiel 36 has never happened. They've, they're speaking as though the new covenant never came. If we say, well, you've got, listen to your heart, and they say, well, no, the heart's deceitful and wicked. You can't understand it. That's a, a maneuver of a religious person who's living as though the new covenant never came. We do have a new heart. We are supposed to listen to it because the Spirit dwells there. And yes, we do need the Scriptures to train us in how to recognize the Spirit's voice. It's both and, not either or. Um, and one more thing. <laughs> Um, I object to the sexism behind how that is used because what here, here's this idea of the heart. You can't trust it. It's evil gets partnered with a common, um, a common cultural cliche that women listen to their heart and men listen to their head. That's a common cultural cliche. Men are more head driven. Women are more heart driven. And so when we have this, other cliche within Christian circles, you can't trust the heart. It's wicked and deceitful. We dismantle feminine voices because we don't have an equal cliche that the head is evil. Who can understand it? We don't have that one. You know, so we, we assume that reason is redeemed, but the heart and intuition and emotional sensing is not redeemed. Um, and so uh, I've spoken to women sometimes, one woman in particular, I, I tell her story in the book who came to me and said she noticed there were some things that were wrong at her church that just weren't right and how they're getting worked out. And she went to talk to the pastor and she said, um, I, I, there are some things here I want to address. I think they're not right. And he, he basically said, well, chapter and verse, like argue me into why you're right. And she wasn't highly educated. And she said, um, I can't. I can't argue you chapter and verse. I can just tell you my heart tells me something's not right here. And his response was, well, you can't trust your heart. You know, the Bible tells us that. And that gets used against women often, or just people who maybe aren't educated in the scriptures enough, even though they're part of the body of Christ. Um, and, uh, and, and so this, this new covenant equalizes the playing field to say, God can speak through everyone, the educated and the uneducated, men and women, uh, Jew and Gentile. He, he can speak through us all. Doesn't replace the scriptures. They're still important. Save your cards and letters. I'm still saying the Bible is important, but the way we relate to the Bible and how we use it is going to be different. And you're like speaking on a language and mine particularly too, because, you know, um, I've been particularly interested in the, you know, it, it, I tend to be more emotive than I am head processor. Uh, mm -hmm. Josh and I are very similar individuals in that way. Um, and so I, I find that my my feeling, I just have a feeling of this is oftentimes pushed to the side also because it's not, it's not that, well, I've analyzed this and I've got 10 reasons why, you know, this is exactly the way it is. And so I, I'm, I'm right there with you and, and tracking along all that with you. Cause it's, um, it's, that's pretty much me and I'm a guy. So yep. <laughs> I fall into that realm. Um, but, but also a question I was curious about as we're, as we're talking about this is um, you're talking about the, the old covenant and the new covenant and, um, can you talk a little bit about how Jesus fulfills the law, but not abolishes it and how that kind of comes together? I, I realize that's a point of contention. Oh, yeah, that's that's a fantastic question, too. Yeah. Matthew 5, Jesus has this beautiful line. It's Matthew five seventeen, where he says near the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, he says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. And if he had only stopped there with a period, then we could all say, okay, so we kind of follow the New Testament and the Old Testament. You know, we follow, we have one foot planted in the Old Covenant, one foot planted in the New. We have a well-balanced diet. 
we follow the law and we follow the Sermon on the Mount. It's a little bit of both. And I'm sure the religious leaders listening to him at that point would, would have said, yay, I've not come to abolish the law or the prophet or, or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them. The next word, though, is the word but. Uh, I haven't come to abolish them, but I have come to fulfill them. So for the first half of the sentence, I see the religious leaders going, yay, don't abolish. And then the second half of the sentence, I see the religious leaders going, huh? What? What? Now what, what are you saying? <laughs> I haven't come to abolish them, but there is a but there. I have come to fulfill them. What does that mean? What does that mean to fulfill them? Uh, when you fulfill something, you you fill it with the meaning that it was originally intended, and you allow that thing to arrive at its telos would be the technical term, at its endpoint destination. So when you ride a train to the final station, the train has fulfilled its telos. It has its terminus. It has reached its endpoint destination. Now you don't abolish the train. You don't say, great, the train's done. Let's explode the train. You don't abolish the train, but you the train has been fulfilled. And now you get off the train and you're where you are and you live there. Um, the old covenant is a train ride that gets us to the new covenant. And Jesus doesn't say we're going to now blow it up, that it's over. That's why Christians have the Old Testament in our Bibles. We continue to learn from it, but differently. We read the laws not as laws. They're no longer law to us. Well, they never were if we're not Jewish, but we don't read them as trying to learn how to obey certain laws. The thing about laws is that they are contextual to a culture and a time in history. For instance, a law in Canada, uh, the highway near me, the speed limit is 100 kilometers an hour. That's around 60 miles per hour. That's a law. Um, but that law might be different in a different time or a different place. Well, here's, a, here's another illustration. Um, in Canada, it is the law to drive on the right-hand side of the road. I hear it's the same thing in America. Lovely. But if either of us were to go to the UK, we can't say, well, God wants us to drive on the right-hand side of the road. The law is the opposite. The thing about laws is they change culture to culture, place to place, and sometimes time to time. And so the old covenant law was exactly that. It's law for a specific place, a specific nation, God's holy people. And we're not under that law in any way. But the principles behind the law, like drive safely, pick a side, um, the, the principles will endure, will just be translated differently. So Jesus says, I haven't come to abolish it. That's good. We keep reading our whole Bible, but we read it differently now as something that's pointing to Jesus, because he says, I haven't come to abolish it, but I have come to fulfill it. And, and so, yay for the whole Bible, as long as we're using the Bible correctly. And Jesus will go on then in other places to teach the Pharisees how to do that. They were the Bible-believing, uh, Bible-toting, Bible-loving, Bible-living group of uh, holiness movement of their day. And he teaches them in John 5 that you've got to use the scriptures to as the train that leads to me. If you don't use them that way, you're doing it wrong. And you, he has this amazing line in John 5, 37 and 38. He says, and if you don't do that, the word of God does not dwell in you. That's huge because they had the scriptures dwelling in them. They had the Bible and they had memorized more Bible than any of us are ever going to. And Jesus says, nope, you have scripture in you. You don't have the word of God in you until you're using it to point to me. Yeah. Yeah. That's so good, Braxy. And that, that, um, it makes me think of this idea, uh, often, um, 
I, I can get frustrated sometimes when having a conversation similar to this uh, with some friends who are in different uh, Christian traditions who kind of look at things maybe a little bit differently. Um, because often I notice what they try to do is balance or counteract the word of Jesus uh, mm-hmm. with, say, like Moses or, you know, something from the Old Testament. And so, um, and they say, no, we, you know, we, we follow the Bible. Um, but, you know, I've, I've taken from you this idea, of, well, we follow Jesus. And I, I think that's because, um, you know, Jesus is the ultimate revelation of who God is. You know, Jesus says all power and authority has been given to me, things like that. And so it seems like uh, Jesus is kind of like um, uh, those movies where uh, at the end something crazy happens and then it changes how you view then the whole movie back from the beginning. So I'm thinking of like the usual suspects or um, the sixth sense. Yeah. So like the, I guess the question that begs is like, what is the word of God? Is it the Bible or is it Jesus? And do we follow the Bible or should we follow this, this Jesus guy? Yeah, no, right on. Oh, Kaiser Soze. <laughs> Kaiser yeah. Soze, yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> I'm getting flashbacks. It's such a good movie. Yeah. Um, yes, so it's so true. So the, the word of God can be used to refer to scriptures, but I think you'd be hard-pressed to find it. I can I can find maybe one or two places where you might be able to say, I think here maybe Jesus or Paul is using the phrase word of God to refer to scriptures. But, you know, usually the scriptures are just called the scriptures. That's the most common identification. The next, the more common use for word of God is the message that the scriptures convey or the message of the gospel. We have to preach the word of God to you. We have to, and that doesn't mean we're going to read scripture to you. It means you need the gospel. Uh, It's used that way much more commonly in the new covenant. It's the message that the scriptures are pointing us towards and that the new covenant church was preaching about Jesus. But then there's this laser sharp definition of the word of God that helps put it all together that becomes really central. And that's the person of Jesus, because he is the center of the message that is the word of God. And so Jesus himself is called the word of God. And so I think uh, uh, we should prioritize that Jesus is the word of God. The next most important way we would use that is to say the gospel message of Jesus is the word of God. And if on occasion someone wants to use the phrase word of God to refer to the scriptures, they're not wrong. It just shouldn't be the most common understanding unless you first identify Jesus is the word of God and the message about Jesus is the word of God. Then, okay, you can occasionally refer to the Bible that way. The problem is that list of three has been turned on its head by traditional Christianity. So that most often a Bible, a Bible preacher will have his, his good, thick, slapping Bible this is me slapping the Bible. Um, you know, I love to slap the bass and slap the Bible. And so he, he'll be like this. We've got to get our nation back to the word of God. And it, it's so um, visible that it, it just it fits in our heads really easily. Word of God is a bunch of words in this book. And, and then, yes, of course, we'll say, yeah, the message is the word of God. Jesus is the word of God. We'll pay lip service to that. But if you listen to their teaching, 9.9 times out of 10, when the phrase word of God comes out of their mouth, it's the way it rarely is used in scripture. And that is to refer to the book or to the scriptures themselves. And that re- that's a product of the Protestant Reformation. And it's understood. We can critique history and understand it without, I think, being mean-spirited by the people. But we understand that the Protestant Reformation were Christians pushing back against 
the ill health of the Catholic Church. And I think our Catholic friends would acknowledge at that time, the Catholic Church was very unhealthy in some significant ways. Understood. And so Protestants protested, pushed back against that and said, one of the problems the church is so unhealthy is you've given church tradition and the word of the Pope as much influence or more influence than you've given scripture. So we need to get the, we need to decentralize church tradition and put the Bible into the center of our lives. I understand why they made that maneuver. It just didn't go far enough because when they said we got to put the Bible in the center of our lives, they didn't put Jesus in the center of that Bible that they were putting in the center of our lives. And when you just say we follow the Bible, I understand they're trying to course correct a problem, but it created a different problem and that we, we became self-identified as people of the book, people who love the word of God, meaning it's scripture. And that opens up the door, like you've pointed out, Josh, uh, for people to quote different parts of the Bible and play one off the other um, and, and feel like, well, it's all the word of God. It's kind of all equal. It's all there for the pickings. I was listening to a, a Protestant preacher preaching on the Sermon on the Mount. Um, this goes back now just a couple of years. And, 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 and I wanted to really pay attention because I thought, I know this guy's not a pacifist. How is he going to deal with the peace teaching of Jesus, the whole turn the other cheek, go the second mile stuff? And, and so when he got to that, it was a series. I made sure I, I listened to, to him online. And when he got to that week, he taught the peace teaching of Jesus and how we should be nonviolent. And I was really amazed. I said, wow, you're really like you're sounding Anabaptist. You're sounding like the radical reformers. And he taught this. And I was like, wow, this is amazing. And I, I should have just turned off the radio right then, but I kept listening. And then he did this amazing maneuver. He said, of course, it's clear Jesus did teach this, but we must also remember that Moses taught that there is times when he led Israel into war and Joshua did. And, and, the, and Solomon says there's a time for war. And he starts quoting all these Old Testament passages and said, so we have to balance out the teachings of Jesus with the teachings of God through the Old Testament writers and so sometimes we go to war, sometimes we're peaceful. And I thought, you've castrated the Christian faith. You've, you know, you've, so, that's a vivid image, I guess, but you've, you've, uh, we've got, we've, we've got no chutzpah. At really, all you basic, that's, that's like everyone else in the world. There's nothing unique about that. Do we think that everyone else in the world thinks you should just go to war all the time and never be peaceful? No, most people say be peaceful until it's time not to be. And you've basically just turned Christians into, well, basically everybody else. So Jesus doesn't bring anything unique to the table when you do that. Don't castrate Christ. That's my message to you. I'll have to put that in the study guide. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, well, so, so Bruxy, I want to I want to play devil's advocate here. Um, so forgive me for my sarcasm in this question, but that's no, great. Um, so, <laughs> so I mean, the way that we're talking about following just Jesus, but not following the Bible, specifically the Old Testament. I mean, how is this not Marcionism? Oh, in a thousand different ways. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> Hence the sarcasm. <laughs> yeah, good. No, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. So, so for people who don't know, right, Marcion was someone who was a heretic for a number of reasons, and one of them believing that there's such a contrast between the Old Testament and the New Testament that the Old Testament God has to be different than the New Testament God, um, and that uh, there's some demiurge or demigod who, who's revealed in the Old Testament as being terribly violent, but thankfully Jesus comes along and shows us what the true God is like, and it's just an entire theological construct that I don't think you can support biblically. Um, rather, the same God 
changes his way of working with God's people by bringing about the new covenant. Um, that's true. And we ask the question, why? Why not just start with Jesus? You know, Adam and Eve sin, bring Jesus. And the Apostle Paul does address that in Galatians chapter 3 and chapter 4, where he says that human, he, he, he blames or he attributes the issue to humanity in a developmental context. He uses a developmental uh, uh, construct for his answer. He says, because humanity was ready for the new covenant yet, which is just, you know, listen to your heart, follow the spirit, get to recognize the voice of God and make wise, mature, loving decisions. Humanity wasn't ready for that. We were so hard hearted, so to speak, that we were like raising strong willed toddlers. You know, we would not listen and we were going to kill ourselves and our siblings one way or the other before we hit five years old. Um, And so when you're raising a strong willed toddler, you need more rituals, routines, Kids thrive with routines and strong, clear rules with very clear consequences. And and so that's the nature of the development of humanity. We needed that. And then Paul has this beautiful phrase, but when the time had fully come, there was something, we have to trust God on this, there was something about history, humanity, all arriving at the right place at the right time, that we were ready for the new covenant. Uh, That's when Christ came. So, so it's the same God relating or parenting us differently. So now you guys, um, if, if, if you're, you have a relationship with your parents, it's got to be a different relationship than when you were four years old. If you are like calling your mom and dad every so often to say, do I have to eat all my vegetables on my plate? You know, I did have a, a healthy snack this afternoon. Could I, or what do I wear when I go outside today? Or what time do I have to go to bed? You know, I did get a good night's sleep last night. Can I stay up an extra hour later tonight? If you're calling your parents on those issues, that's not your parents saying, yes, that's a parental win. My kids are always codependent on me for every rule and every decision they make. No, that's failed parenting, right? Because parenting, true parenting is a and true maturing of children is a process of the um, incorporation of the external rules. So the the rule of you have to go to bed at eight o'clock becomes the principle of you need to get enough rest. And the the rule of you have to eat all your vegetables is you need to eat a healthy diet. But our parents want us to internalize those external rules from childhood and start to live them out as wisdom principles. And the Bible tells us that's the same God doing the same thing with his family, his human family, and the new covenant reflects our, we're still God's children, but now we're God's adult children. And he wants to see us making up, uh, making up our own minds uh, wisely and lovingly. Yeah, right on. Thank you for that, Bruxy. I know uh, Marty and I wanted to ask that question just kind of sarcastically because uh, oddly enough, that has been a critique uh, that we have heard from some of our more, uh, you know, friends in different Christian traditions. We'll put it that way so we don't, um, you know, talk poorly about anyone's tradition. Our friends uh, in high or low places, depending yeah. on uh, which, you, <laughs> which Garth Brooks you want to be. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Well, it's funny because I think of uh, it's pretty it's pretty clear. So the the charge of Marcionism sounds like a desperate. I'm not accusing the particular people who say it this way because sometimes people just say things because that's what they've heard somebody else say and they haven't thought it all the way through. So God bless them. They're they're parroting something, and um, and we need to help. I think help them grow up. But sometimes people will say that um, with a because they have not wrestled with what the scriptures themselves say, which is so ironic because. No one in this conversation is saying, you know, I understand the Bible is pretty much like that, but it's time for us to leave the Bible aside and move on to something different. 
we're all saying, what does the Bible actually say? It's more radical than you have represented it as. The, like all of these ideas we're talking about, the new covenant and the centrality of Jesus, we didn't make this up. You know, we didn't read the Bhagavad Gita and then say, let's impose that on our scriptural understanding. We got this stuff from Jesus, you know, we're kind of ripping off Jesus on this. And I think that's uh, sometimes the people who say you guys are ignoring scripture are themselves really projecting what they are most guilty of, unfortunately, is ignoring the radical nature. So here's one verse, Hebrews 8.13, Hebrews 8.13. The whole Hebrews um, 8, 9, and 10 is talking about how radical the new covenant is and that it's really new. It's completely new. It's radically new and that you shouldn't try and stand one foot in the new, one foot in the old. You have to leave behind the old and come live in the new. And, uh, and the writer's trying to make that point for religious Jews in chapters 8, 9, and 10 of Hebrews. And in one verse, Hebrews 8, 13, he says, uh, and by calling the new covenant new, not just another covenant, but a new covenant, God made the first one obsolete. I, that's pretty clear, uh, right? Because there's two different ways you could use the, way, the word new. New could mean adding to. Like, oh, I've got a new thing here that I'm going to add on to the old. Or new could mean like you've replaced the old. All right. So, so that your new boss means your old boss is no longer your boss. And so the new covenant replaces the old covenant and the old covenant is obsolete. Now, sometimes if I say to someone, well, I, I just kind of think the old covenant's obsolete. If they're quoting Moses, they're quoting, I say, well, that stuff's obsolete. They'll say, whoa, 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 Mr. Marcion, you can't call the Bible obsolete. And I say, oh, sorry, I was just quoting the Bible when I said that. That's, that's what the Bible says. You got one part of the Bible saying it's time to come into this part, the new covenant, man, because the old one's obsolete. Yeah, absolutely. That's so good, Broxy. And I know, too, somebody, um, it just, again, anecdotally, I thought this was interesting. Uh, a few years back, uh, someone who I think most people are familiar with, uh, Andy Stanley. Uh, for those of you who don't know, he's like evangelical megachurch pastor, very popular. Um, he came out with a book called Irresistible, and he was kind of, you know, that was thrown at him a lot. And yeah. then I heard I heard Andy speak at uh, the Orange Conference this past year. And uh, when he spoke, I was like, oh, my goodness, Andy's been like – listening to Bruxy or something. <laughs> and then and then I saw that he endorsed uh, your new book, uh, the updated and expanded yeah. version of The End of Religion. I was very pleased with that. So I think it's cool um, that, you know, people are tracking with this because it's it's been so helpful and transformative uh, for myself and the the centrality of Jesus, the, the Jesus-centered hermeneutic, the Jesus-centered theology is just like, it's, that's where it's at, <laughs> basically. Yeah. Right on. And we're getting this stuff from the Bible. So right. I think the problem with Bible fundamentalists is they're not fundamentalists enough. Enough, yeah. <laughs> they only have used the Bible enough to prop up their own agendas, and they haven't really plumbed the depths enough to mm. see just how radical Jesus is. And I'm talking of the Jesus of the Bible. Absolutely. Yeah, man. So real last, last question um, before we let you go, because uh, I've shared this kind of stuff with some people before. Um, and specifically, I was having a conversation with uh, somebody who listens to our podcast. Uh, his name is Connor. And uh, Connor is a very intelligent uh, individual uh, currently going through like the whole deconstruction stuff, asking really great questions, difficult questions. Um, and he was like, Josh, like this, it, that sounds cool. But what I'm getting stuck on is there's like this evangelical cliche that I grew up with mm -hmm. that kind of has caused me harm, which is like, 
you know, it's about relationship, not religion. So how is, how is this different? Yeah. So I don't, I don't think that's what you're doing. And so I just, I wanted to call that question up because I thought Connor had a good point and I, I know you'll have a nice response for us. Oh, I'm sure I will. Um, (laughs) Thanks for your faith, man. I don't know. I can just pick my nose and say, I don't know. But I, I think I'm with Connor on this in that I talk about this in the book. So we're, we're, we're on the same page on this one. I grew up hearing the same cliche. What I found is when I asked people, what do you mean it's about relationship? It's not about religion. Um, most of the adults in my life didn't really know. <laughs> it was exactly that, a cliche and only a cliche. So then I pushed back against that. And as many people do who have to deconstruct an evangelical background, uh, as many people do, they'll, they'll turn towards something that is more um, externally, perhaps more structured, a, a liturgical denomination or uh, church, et cetera. Um, and and that, that, that's understandable. But what I came to finally realize is what they're saying is absolutely true. It's just that the people saying it don't know what they're saying. <laughs> uh, it is about relationship. That's what the word faith means. Faith is a trust-based relationship. That's the word Jesus uses. Um, it's about knowing um, which means experiential knowledge. Jesus says in John 17, 3, he's praying to the Father about us. And he says, I pray that they may know you. Uh, he says, uh, for this is salvation, that they may know you. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus whom you have sent. And that word to know, it's, it's used in, um, in Hebrew culture as a euphemism for sex. So it's an experiential intimacy, right? It is a relationship. And trying to capture that by the word religion is... It, it, it's too much, it's too profound, it's, it's too beautiful for the word religion to bear. Um, but the word relationship gets much closer. So I've come to the conclusion, the cliche, Connor, that you heard growing up is true, but that doesn't mean the way people were using it and their understanding of it is true. And so, um, and so this could be a new season of actually plumbing the depths of what does it mean to have a, a knowing, intimate relationship with God? Hmm. Sweet. Thank you for that, Bruxy. And also on behalf of Connor, because I know he would want to say thank you as well. So right. thank you. It's, it's almost as if people, when they say that, they're like one-tenth of the way towards understanding discipleship. And if they just, like you said, dove a little bit deeper, they would start to see what true discipleship was. Mm. Uh, and then they would really know this, like, oh, like it's about relationship. It's about it's about continuing this and like you, you used an intimacy, um, you know, like as far as sex is concerned, but also like, that's not the only thing that my wife and I do. Like right. my, my, my wife and I have to focus on our relationship yeah. outside of that too. And if our relationship was only that, yeah. it would be one tenth of what we needed. And if it was only something else, it would be one tenth of what we, like there's, there's, I mean, I'm speaking, you know, obviously outside the realm of what, of truthfulness, but there, if there's 10 things needed in a marriage for that relationship to succeed, and we only do one of them all the time, then yeah. we will never be successful. And I think people with Jesus do that often where we, we, we do one thing maybe pretty well mm. and the other nine things we don't do at all. And then we say, Oh, it's all about relationship, man. You, you got to understand relationship and then yeah. walk away and hope you figure out what it means to be a true disciple on your own. Oh, <laughs> Instead of discipling you into that. That's so. good. Uh, that's, that's great. Uh, yeah, that's right. It's not just saying, well, marriage is that relationship I have sex within. I mean, that, that minimizes your de- definition, your understanding of if that's all you did, you're right. You wouldn't have a full marriage. You have lots of children, but you wouldn't have a full marriage. Yeah. <laughs> when, when you're on a date with somebody, 
if you said, I just want to interview you and learn stuff about you, you might be like a theology student who's not having a relationship. They're just distilling God to, but if the other, if the opposite was true, you're on a date with someone and you said, baby, you're attractive. How about we just go back to my place? And she says, well, I want to get to know you. Don't you want it? And you just went, oh, don't talk. I don't really want to get to know about you. I want to get to yeah. know you. I want to experience you. You know, you say, well, hold on. A part of really having a full relationship with someone, yes, it's the intimate experience, but it's also knowing who they are and being interested in the fullness of that person. So to get to know God, to say it's about a relationship, not about religion, is true if you understand the fullness of what relationship is. It's not just having a privatized experience light. It's about having a fully orbed, engaged, mutually learning and understanding relationship. And it's never fully accomplished either. Right. We're, 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 we're never finished. And then now we can just live in that relationship and be done. Like, yeah. you know, there's, there's work to be done at all times. That's, that's right discipleship. Right on. Well, Bruxy, this has been, this has been awesome. Um, Josh has uh, long spoke of the lore of Bruxy Cavey and um, <laughs> Uh, I've I've not been able to experience yet, uh, experience and know um, who you are uh, until this moment. But uh, it's been so grateful to, I, I've been so grateful to be a part of this conversation. Uh, I know Josh has too. Um, so as, as we kind of close up today, where can people find you? What, what can, what should people look for uh, to get to know you better? Okay. Yeah, sure. If you have any questions, if anyone wants to continue the, and turn this kind of monologue into dialogue and, and come and join the conversation. Um, well, I think my name is, it makes it easy because I'm easy to find on social media <laughs> with a name like Bruxy, uh, Bruxy Cavey. Uh, well, there's not many of me out there. So whether it's uh, Instagram or, or Twitter or Facebook, or I'm pretty much on all the social media, so you can look for me. Um, and, uh, and I'm happy to get questions or challenges and just have conversation. Um, as far as our church is concerned, that's called The Meeting House. And if you just go to themeetinghouse.com, you can get more of our teaching, like our Sunday teaching. And then we have these little short videos as well that just respond to people's questions. And all of that's on our website, themeetinghouse.com. And then lastly, I do have a blog page. Does anyone read blogs anymore? But occasionally when I've got some ideas, I throw them out there and that's just my name.com. It's bruxy.com, bruxy.com. So you got the mediahouse.com, bruxy.com, and you got social media. And then you can order my book, The End of Religion, wherever you buy books, whether that's Amazon or any other place, uh, it's there and ready to go. Sweet. Yeah. Thank awesome. you so much, Broxy. We'll be sure to um, to link those things in the show notes. And also I'm going to throw in, a, in a, one other thing in the show notes. I want to link Jesus Collective. Yeah, um, because I know Jesus Collective, uh, you know, talking with John, he would happily endorse this conversation <laughs> because we have, yeah, we have Brexy here. So we'll go ahead and link Jesus Collective, guys. That's something that's really cool. That's that's kind of bubbling up. Um, yeah, it's brand new this year. And it's people like us wanting to kind of resort out their faith with Jesus in the center, um, getting together in purposeful ways. And so it'd be wonderful for people to be a part of that. Yeah, absolutely. It's been amazing and I'm excited to be a part of it. And I think you guys would like it too. So Jesus Collective will be there as well. Yeah. Cool. And Josh, I was thinking that maybe at the end of this COVID thing, when maybe things die down a little bit and Canada actually invites and welcomes uh, Americans to come visit, uh, you and I should go up to Bruxy's church uh, for a service or two and like actually experience the meeting house or as he says, the meeting house 
Oh, awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I can't like, get it. your get your Canadian accent. Just yeah. use just use the word process. That's oh, yeah, that's a really good way to go. Process. My, it's it's a process. Just use my yeah. Uper, use my Uper <laughs> accent. My 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 college Uper accent was close. <laughs> guys, it's close enough. Take off. Yeah, eh? Perhaps when yeah. this is all over, when when the dust settles, Josh, we can go visit Bruxy at his church. That'd be awesome. Field trip. Yes, <laughs> I would love to go to Canada and the meeting houses. Joining one of your parishes. Look at that new language. I would love to hang out. Yeah, (laughs) sweet. (laughs) All right, guys. Well, uh, as always, thank you so much uh, for listening and go Caps. Go Blackhawks. And peace and love, guys. Thank you. Uh